0: Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today, you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. Sometimes I just feel sad. I, I don't necessarily even know why. I don't know if any of you were ever like that, but there's times I just find myself just feeling sad. Now, there's plenty of times I feel sad, and I know exactly why I'm sad. But our emotions are interesting things. Uh, God made us emotional people. He made us to have emotions. And so they are part of God's plan for us. And, and I think what we want to understand is that our emotions, uh, God intends for those to be telling us, hey, there's, there's a problem here. Or, hey, this is a good thing. You know, we feel joyful, excited. This is a positive thing. Or if you're feeling sad or angry, wait a minute, there's some issue that needs to be addressed. So we have these emotions to, to alert us and to reinforce good and positive things. But, but our emotions sometimes seem like they take on a life of their own, don't they? Seems like it. And sometimes people get stuck in certain places with their emotions. interesting. It's interesting. Um, my uh, second daughter uh, got married yesterday out in Amherst. And I didn't have to do the ceremony. I, I wasn't in charge of rehearsal. I was, you know, I just did whatever they told me. And I was just chilling, doing the dad thing. And um, I hadn't really been feeling emotional about it. I mean, it, I was happy about it and all that. But uh, we were waiting in the back. And uh, the, the wedding party walked out. And I'm there to escort her out. And right before it came our time, all of a sudden I went, <laughs> Wait a minute, I mean, I wasn't expe- I expecting not want to, you know, lose control here, so I calmed down and, and walked out, and then about halfway down, I really felt like I was going to go, <laughs> and I really had to fight that. I mean, I'm serious, that, like, I don't want to make any noise here, and so I had this face like, I don't know, I'd be interested to see if anybody got a picture of that face. And so it was some emotion off and on, and, and I'm saying I don't know what that was about. I mean, it's an emotional time—a dad and a daughter, and and maybe it's you know it's it's a passing of a certain time in life. Now I'm into a different time there. So there's emotions there, but I, was I sad or was I like to say it was you know tears of joy? But I, I didn't feel real joyful at the moment either. Um, but you know I'm fine. It passed. But here's something that happens to people, and that's that something happens in life, maybe something they did, this is because we're, we're dealing with regrets in this sermon series. And, and they said something or did something that they just so wish they hadn't, or they don't say or do something that they so wish they had. And they regret it. They feel like I made a mistake or I maybe even sinned. I did what was wrong, whatever. And they have that sense of regret. Well, it's very natural to feel sorrow, isn't it? We made a bad decision, so we feel sorrow. We feel sadness. That is normal. And and so as we walk that out, you know, as we go on, you know, the, the sadness gets a little less. The sorrow isn't as overwhelming. And we go on through life. But sometimes people have something that they regret and that sadness sets in and they are sad today and tomorrow and the next month and the next year and the next year and the next year. And and they never escape that sorrow. And that's a problem because of what it does in our lives. And so we're talking about regrets and how do we learn from them. You know, what what can we learn about the regrets that we already have and dealing with that? What can we learn and maybe do different so we have fewer regrets in the future? And and last week we talked about bitterness. And the bitterness comes know, okay, we have the regret, and then all of a sudden we, rather than owning the responsibility and dealing with it, we start to pass blame. Well, I wasn't treated properly here. That's why I did this. And this person did that. And someone else didn't do what they were supposed to do. And we start to have this, uh, we become bitter. We become hard. We become harsh. And we're responding actively to that thing. And that's a problem. And we said, that'll mess your life up. And not just your life up. It'll mess up everybody else's life that you're in close contact with. Bitterness. With. And remember we said, the, the, the way we deal with that is to make a decision to forgive whoever needs to be forgiven to let it go by forgiving. Maybe we're the ones we have to forgive. So that's the solution. And then we, we learn that how we avoid that in the future is to make sure we value the right things now so we make better decisions now and don't end up with regrets like Esau valued the wrong thing, you remember? Well, bitterness is dealing with that regret like this. It's an active. It's... Uh, whereas sadness... Sorrow, when it catches us, and I'm not talking about just normal, but when all of a sudden it it doesn't let go, it's not an active response, it's a sort of a passive response almost to what's going on. So let's, we we want to talk about this today, the regret, sadness, and sorrow, and the relationship there. Before we do that, let's just take a quick look at what Scripture says about sorrow. In Proverbs chapter 15, it says, a merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. And so what's going on in the heart determines what we experience in life. But what this is saying here is that it is possible to have a depth of sadness and sorrow that actually breaks us on the inside and now in some sense being broken can be a good thing if being broken causes us to turn to the Lord but what we're seeing here and talking about is a broken that isn't leading us to turn to the Lord we're living with being broken and so we don't function well because we are broken inside sorrow can do that. Daniel talks about a sorrow that he experienced uh, related to a vision that the Lord had given him about what was gonna happen. And he says this, my sorrows have overwhelmed me and I have retained no strength. No strength remains in me now, nor is any breath left in me. And, and we're seeing an aspect of sorrow. What sorrow does, and this idea did break, is it robs us of the strength we need to deal with things in life because we are just sad. And we just don't feel like we have the strength to engage it. And so this becomes a problem for us in life. Now, sorrow is not wrong. Sorrow and sadness are not wrong. They are very, now I, I don't think they were probably part of the original plan, but sin entered the world and sorrow and sadness came to the world. How we process things. Consider the Jesus. As he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, it says in Matthew chapter 26, And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. This is Jesus. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. So sorrow is not a wrong thing. It is a real thing. Okay? Even our Lord and Savior experienced sorrow and a deep, deep sorrow. Sorrow. And good news is this, that one day there'll be no more sorrow. Book of Revelation says this, it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor what? Sorrow, Sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So God is going to fundamentally change the universe in which we live, and there will be no more sorrow, no more sadness. And that is a really, really good thing. But what we want to focus in on today is this idea of when our regrets lead to a sorrow, a sadness that doesn't let go and keeps us unable to respond to life like we need to respond to it today. And so let me say this to you um, to help us to think what's going on when that kind of sorrow happens. Sadness, sorrow, can lead to depression. Now, it's not the only thing that can lead to depression, okay? But it leads to depression. And one of the interesting things is they're they're focusing on today is they're saying that uh, as much as 90% of depression is not caused by a brain chemistry um, problem. That the chemical imbalances that occur in a depressed person are not the cause of the depression but are the results of the depression, and it talks about depressive thinking and how it creates a whole lots of interesting stuff related to this, but so Mark Tyrell and Roger Elliott writing in The Depression Learning Path say this, people who tend towards analyzing what has gone wrong in their lives, reviewing the past selectively, picking out the negative aspects, Catastrophizing, that's a cool world, cool word. Catastrophizing every little setback. Notice every little setback is a catastrophe. Dreaming up future disasters or engaging in self-blame tend to stay locked into the state of depression instead of rising above it. This explains something observed for some time, that depressed people habitually adopt a particular way of thinking to explain things that happen to and around them, a particular way of thinking that keeps them stuck. And what I want you to see is that there is a particular way of thinking about life that when we find ourselves sad and sorrowful, a a, a way of thinking and looking at life that will keep us stuck in the sorrow and the sadness. And so we want to identify that today. And we're going to do this by looking at Judas's story. Now, Judas, good guy, bad guy. What do you think? We don't want to commit because we don't know what you're saying. <laughs> we generally think he's a bad guy. What's he called? He's a traitor. Uh, any of you who are in a hurry to name your, your one of your children Judas? No, see, because we we know we have this sense about Judas because of what he did in betraying the Lord. So we want to look at his example today because I think we see in Judas' example a sorrow that was so deep and devastating that it it produced this, in a very short period of time, a, a desperate depression to where he actually took his life took his own life. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 12. We have to look several places to follow his story. John chapter 12. It's page 1238 in the Bible there in the chairs. (coughs) John 12, uh, let's read verses 3 through 6 here. It says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. So this is a real act of worship and acknowledging of who Jesus was in her life. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. And so we learn something about Judas right here. What are his motives for following Christ? Pure, holy, and high? <laughs> no, his motives for following Christ are what's in it for Judas. Now he may have you know, hoped that Jesus was the Messiah and was gonna overthrow the Romans and all that, but, but he was in the mix for himself. Now Jesus had called him, Jesus knew Judas, knew what he was like, knew what he would do. But what I want you to see is that Judas, from the very beginning, the first thing we hear about him, he is in it for Judas. What's in it for me? How's this affecting me? What's this going to do for me in the future? What can I do for me right now? Even if I gotta bend the rules a little bit for myself, okay? So that's what we see, what's going on. By the way, why would he be like that? Because Judas was just some bad guy, right? I don't think so. Judas was a human being like us. And so something le- in Judas's life led him to be the kind of person who would choose to steal, to take care of himself no matter what. You know, I don't care what's going on. I'm going to take care of number one here. So something had happened in Judas' life. And I would say to you, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself maybe, but I'd venture a guess here that uh, Judas had things in his life that had already caused significant sadness and sorrow. And his motives in dealing with that came out to, I'm going to take care of number one. I'm not going to let anybody hurt me again. I'm going to do what I need to do. And because we see what happens to Judas, happens so fast. I think it must have been built on a lifetime of this approach okay all right so let's go to luke chapter 22 that's page 1233 or 1213 sorry 1213 luke chapter 22 <clears throat> verse number 1 it says now the feast of unleavened bread drew near which is called passover and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him for they feared the people Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. And so, okay, we say, oh, that's it. That's why Judas is the way he was, because Satan entered into him. Well, before Satan entered into him, we already saw he was what? A thief. He had already made the decision. I want you to know something, that Satan cannot enter anybody unless they are open to it. Now, they may not consciously, but they have to be open to going that direction in their life. And we see Satan kind of come and go here during this process, helping, you know, getting Judas to do uh, what he wanted to do, but Judas didn't do anything against his will. He cooperated. All right, so then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the 12. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. They agreed to give him money. What's that mean? Judas was negotiating with, hey, if I bring him, will you give me money? So, and they agreed, yes, we will give you money. So it's showing us again, what's motivating Judas? What are his motives? His motives are taking care of Judas. Judas is the most important thing in Judas' life. By the way, don't we all kind of start there? We all kind of start there, but we need to remind ourselves, as Christians, we shouldn't live there. Okay? Judas is living there. So, verse 6. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. Go to Matthew chapter 26. That's page 1146. 1146. Matthew 26. Let's start in verse 47. We actually see the betrayal. But there's something that goes along with this, that happens in this betrayal that I think impacts Judas deeply and it gets him to this place of sorrow very quickly. It says, and while he was still speaking, Jesus, while Jesus was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the 12 with a great multitude, with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Now, Wouldn't you think normally Judas would have stood up and said, that's him. That's him. But for some reason or other, he says, no, I'm going to act like I'm, you know, just one of his faithful disciples. I'll go up and give him a kiss, and you'll know that's the one. Judas is trying to what? Protect himself. Protect his own reputation. For all Judas, you know, he thinks I might be able to continue to be one of this group. Verse 49, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. What does Jesus call him? Friend. I've been a friend to you, Judas. I've treated you well. I've valued you, I've included you, friend. And so at that moment, you know, and elsewhere, Jesus says, you know, are you betraying me with a kiss? Um, I think we may, I don't know if we see that yet. I I think I got ahead of myself here somewhere. I did. I did. That's right. So betraying me with a kiss. And when Jesus, that was over in Luke, we didn't look at it. Jesus said, are you betraying me with a kiss? And I can't help but think for Judas that did what? Oh, pierced right down in. You're acting like you love me, Judas. Into his soul. And now he calls him friend. What's that do to Judas? It just drives that thing deep down inside of him. What am I doing? I, I, you know, where he has to steel himself against it, you know, but I, this is what I'm doing. And so the way Jesus treats him, I think just magnifies the regret that he's going to feel. In other words, Jesus didn't give him any reason to feel good about what he was doing, did he? He could have got mad at Jesus. What are you doing? And then Jesus would have had a reason. To, but Jesus didn't give him that. So let's go to uh, chapter 27 now. Chapter 27, starting in verse number one. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. So this is after he's been on trial overnight, and they're saying, how can we have him put to death? Because the uh, Jewish people weren't allowed to have someone put to death. Only the Romans could do that, so they're conniving, trying to figure out how to make this happen. Verse two, and when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and Ellis, And we'll follow up on that more in just a moment. Something happens to Judas here when he sees that Jesus condemned. My sense is that Judas thought that by betraying Christ, he was going to initiate the revolution. Jesus was gonna stand up and say, you know, okay, it's time for my followers to come and throw off the Roman yoke. And uh, it's still, you know, very self-centered because that was gonna be what was best for Judas, see. And it didn't happen, all of a sudden he's seeing, wait a minute, that isn't happening, what's happening instead is this Jesus who calls me friend, who has been nothing but good to me and I have betrayed him, he is now condemned. All of a sudden, it's boom. It just begins to crush Judas, what's going on. And so, uh, let's read again. Then Judas' betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Remorseful. Interesting word. It isn't the same word as repentant. When someone is repentant, they are acknowledging that, wow, the way I have done something or the way I am doing something is not the right way. I need to turn away from that and turn to what is right. And usually we're thinking, turn away from my sin to God, right? But in this sense, remorseful, Judas was feeling bad. But why was Judas feeling bad? Judas was feeling bad because Judas was feeling bad. Do you understand what I'm saying? He, he, he didn't like what he was experiencing and the way he was seeing himself and, and the way things were going down. He didn't like it. Judas is still very much about Judas. It's still about him and how this is affecting him and what difference it's going to make in his life. He's remorseful. Those of you who are parents, have you ever had a child who, when you had to confront them about something, you know, they acted sorry, but you knew, wait a minute. They aren't really sorry for what they did. They're sorry because they what? Got caught. In other words, there's not this proper way of really dealing with this, right? It's a wrong kind of sorrow. And this is what Judas has here. That wrong kind of sorrow. And it's a kind of sorrow then that grips him and just destroys his life very quickly. So let's read this. He was remorseful. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. That's your problem, you traitor. Oh, now they're hammering Judas again. And, 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 and he's seeing himself in this light. And, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way it's going to be. This is what I'm going to be known for. And. And it's just so overwhelmed. Judas is so overwhelmed with Judas. His motives are wrong. Verse 5, then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. He is so overcome with the sorrow that he says, I said, I, I can't deal with this anymore. I'm going to stop dealing with it. And he hung himself. See, Judas' motives had been wrong a long time. His motives, he was he was selfish, he was self-focused. He was take care of number one, no matter what it means. That's the way he approached life. Those were his his motives were selfish, self-centered. Those were his motives. Okay? Well then serious regret comes. I mean he has serious regret. It's like man I wish I hadn't done that. But he feels The sorrow is so overwhelming, he makes a fatal mistake. He responds to that sorrow and sadness the same way he's been living his life. He responds with the wrong motives. And he wasn't able to process the sorrow. He wasn't able to deal with it. Now, I know our tendency is to think that, well, he's Judas. (laughs) Judas. Right, didn't God say that he knew it was gonna happen and that, you know, Judas had been better off if he'd never lived than to do this? Yeah, that's all there, that's true. But let me say something to you. I am convinced that Jesus died for Judas, just like he did for me, just like he did for you. The Bible says, this: says Jesus' death was satisfactory payment for the sins of the whole world or not just for our sins but for the sins of the whole world that includes Judas that means theoretically it was possible for Judas to respond differently at this point I know the word doesn't tell us but based on what we understand about the word it would seem that Judas could have yes regretted it and yes been very sorry but with different motives that what have I done this is so wrong, not what have I done, what is everybody going to think of me? How is this going to affect me? What's, you see the difference? If he had responded with different motives, he might have been able to throw himself on God's mercy and be forgiven. Of course, we know he didn't. And so he sealed his destiny forever, dying without making things right with the Lord never having received Christ as Savior. So I want you to see is when, when, what Judas did, when he responded with those same selfish, same self-focused motives, he just multiplied his sorrow problem to the point where he took his life. Uh, Psalm 16 gives us some insight into this. It says, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. And who was Ju- Ju- Judas's other God? Judas, himself. He put himself before everything else. And what I want you to see is this. When you do that, you are going to multiply the sorrow that you have from your regrets. Some of you may be here today already that way. We, talked, we saw what Daniel said. I have no strength. I can't deal with this. I can't deal with life. And because you're still overwhelmed by this sorrow and this sadness. It's probably because... Your motives in this aren't right. What you're worried about in this sorrow and sadness is the wrong thing. It's about you. You see, there's bad sorrow and there's good sorrow. Let's look to the Word to see the difference here. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Because what we want to do is we want to learn, okay? What can we learn from Judas in, in these these things about how to deal with regrets we already have that may be making us very sad, and then how do we you know, make decisions to avoid more of these kinds of regrets in the future? So the Apostle Paul had written a letter to the Corinthians, and in it, he had dealt pretty strongly with some things they were doing wrong and really challenging, him about those, challenging them about those things. And then they responded, they were very they regretted those things and they were very sorry the bible says so let's read what paul has to say about this Uh, first corinthians 7 and verse 8 and we are on page thirteen hundred thirty-one he says for even if i made you sorry with my letter i do not regret it though i did regret it for i perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while okay so there's one of the things we, we need to understand about sorrow. Sorrow is a natural thing. It comes. But when, when we're processing sorrow properly, it only lasts for a while. Now, that doesn't mean that years later you might not think about it and oh, feel some sorrow. But I'm talking about the ideas, you you know what I mean? It's, it's, It's controlling you less. It's not as you're doing better today. That's the intent, only for a while. And so Paul says here, when we have sorrow that only lasts for a while, okay, so this sorrow is the right kind of sorrow. And it's going to make a positive difference in our lives. So let's continue. Verse nine, now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance, to a change. So, this is another thing. When we have regrets, it means we did something wrong, right? Or we didn't do something right, as the case may be. And so we have these regrets. And then we feel sorrow and sadness, which is, oh, we don't like that. What does it do? It makes us say, hey, wait a minute. I don't wanna do that again. And it ought to then lead to turning from there to the Lord okay God I did this and I, God I, I, I don't want to be living that way it's not right and I don't like the, what it does to me either I, I want something different repentance is, means changing turning changing okay now can you already see there's a difference of motive here If it's it's all about me and how this is affecting me and what it's going to mean in my life going forward and how I'm going to have to deal with it, and I get stuck there. But Paul says, no, no, the the kind of sorrow we need is the kind of sorrow that we go, oh, no, and we turn. We turn to the Lord in it. Okay? So, let's continue reading here. So he says, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorrow in, sorry, in a godly manner. Okay, so there's a right kind of sorrow, a good sorrow, a godly sorrow. A godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted. And so here's the picture. When why was talking about salvation here, we tend to think salvation means okay, yeah, that's the person when you're unsaved and you haven't received Christ, if you die in that condition, you go to hell, right? And so we get saved, we have salvation provided for us by Jesus when he died for our sins and rose again. And that's true, but that's not what he's talking about in this passage. He's talking about when we are faced with this this regret, this sorrow and it motivates us to repent to to turn to him, it says that is going to save us from all of that sorrow and sadness that will debilitate us for the rest of our lives. It's gonna save you from that. And it's gonna bring it to where you don't have any regrets about how you're handling it. Think about, if you stay in the middle of it and now a year later you're still struggling with the sadness and sorrow because you're still so self-focused, now you're gonna have new regrets. What's the new regrets? The new regret is how you badly you handled your previous regret, and you just pile it up and up. He says, but no, when we will repent, it, it, it frees us from that. And he says, but the sorrow of the world, the sorrow of the world where it's all about me, number one, take care of number one, when that's my motives, he says, that produces death. And, and the way it produces death, it, it, it brings death of hope. It, it, It puts to death relationships. It puts to death opportunities that you might have and don't feel like you can take. It just produces death. So how crucial is that we check our motives and make sure that we're not being governed by, it's all about me. We need to turn from that and turn to the Lord in dealing with this. So let's continue. He talks about a number of other really good things that come out of the right kind of sorrow. Verse 11, for observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. All right, so here you have regrets. That means you did something wrong or you didn't do something right and you have regrets about it. And this right kind of sorrow, oh, turn away. What do you do the next time that kind of situation comes up? Do you pay attention? Yeah, you pay attention. It produces diligence in you. I don't want to be there again. I don't want to do that again. What clearing of yourselves. You know, when we are stuck there, we don't feel clear. We don't feel free. We feel the weight and the burden and we keep trying to rationalize and justify it. He says, no, but when you will instead turn away from it to the Lord and not have it be just about you, it brings this clearing Oh, freedom. All right, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation. And so indignation, what's that got to do with anything? Why is that there? Well, here's the thing. I'll give you an example, and I, I've talked to people like this. I uh, just talked to someone this morning who has been there. And, and so they get stuck in the sorrow, and then they get in this cycle of, you know, it's all about me and how it's affecting me. And then they start to say, I don't deserve this, you know. And then they say, but wait a minute, I must deserve this. Yeah, this is what I deserve. But when you say, wait a minute, and you turn away from that to the Lord, you say, you get indignant, wait a minute, that's not true. That isn't what I deserve. That isn't right. Or, or someone who wronged you, that's, that's not right. I don't have to own that anymore. That's their choice, that's their decision, not mine. And so we get an indignance about what's lies and things that aren't true, things that are working against us. Um, What indignation, what fear. That's the idea of, you know, really taking seriously your relationship with God and what he wants. What vehement desire. Oh, I so want to get it right this time. What zeal. That's that energy that you have now to bring to it. Remember when you had the, the, you were stuck in sorrow, you had what? No strength. You lost strength. But when you have the right kind of sorrow and you turn to the Lord in it, all of a sudden you gain strength. I can do this. And what vindication, what vindication, you aren't a nobody, you do matter, you can make a difference. God has plans for you, purpose for you, you aren't stuck anymore. In all these things, he summarized, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Clear. And so the difference between these two kinds of sorrow really comes down to what's your motives? What is motivating you? And so when we think about our past, our regrets, those things that, and and if you find yourself struggling with sorrow today that's really way bigger than it ought to be because of what happened in the past, maybe you need to check your motives, why you're so bothered by the sorrow. Are you bothered by the sorrow because it's all about me? Or you're bothered by the sorrow because you're saying, wait a minute, that's not right. I need to turn to the Lord. Okay? The right motives. And so if, if in dealing with those where you get stuck with sorrow, you really got to examine your motives and, and let God change those motives. Turn to Him in that. And how do we avoid then the mistakes going forward? How do we not find ourselves where sadness and sorrow just overwhelms us and we lose strength and can't deal with life? We need to make sure we have the right motives now. Because it'll affect how you interpret what goes on. It'll affect the decisions that you make. And you will not have to make those decisions because your motives are now changed to be the kind of motives that the Lord wants us to have. And I would say this to you. If you find yourself stuck, You know, you find yourself stuck with this sadness, sorrow, that maybe it's even into depression or whatever, but ask for help. Reach out to somebody and ask for help. Get help, because you may need help to help you see how you're thinking and see what your motives are and how you're responding. Get help. And then let me say this too. You know, Christians ought not to be known as sad people. Every Christian I know is a sad person. I think I want to become one. No, as Christians, we ought not to be sad people. Now, does that mean we never get sad? No, the apostle Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he says, he says, yeah, we're going to sorrow. He says, but don't sorrow like people who have no hope. You know, don't get, you're not going to sorrow like the NCAA world well, who has no hope and life is all about them and they're stuck and they can't fix it. And no, we serve a Lord where we can be free. And when things, we sorrow, we sorrow, and we move on. And so, what a testimony it is for the Lord when people run into Christians and they come in here and see us and interact with us, and they see not overwhelming sadness, but overwhelming joy. It really matters that we get a hold of this, not just for ourselves, but so we might reach the world around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word that you speak to us very clearly about our motives and how it affects things. And I pray, Father, you'd help us to see our lives, maybe things in our past that we are so struggling with sadness over, sorrow over. Show us what our true motives are so that we might make sure we have the right motives. Knowing that when we have the right motives, then that sorrow becomes a godly sorrow that frees us up. I thank you that you don't just let us go, that you keep working in our lives. And I pray these things in Jesus' name.